Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I of course cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show, that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. We're back, everyone. We're talking about all things um, college today, college planning, uh, planning for the cost of college, I should say, financial aid topics and things like that. We have we are on Facebook Live this morning. This is the first for me. Um, and we have uh, three guests from Vested Academics. Um, we have Tyler Vunk, who's the CEO of Vested Academics. We have Jen Gallagher, who's a college planning consultant. And we have Joe Novenson, who's a financial aid uh, consultant. You can find out more about these guys on their website, vestedacademics.com. They are first-time guests. You guys are doing awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, going back to our outline, we've uh, sort of before the break, we were um, talking a lot about financial aid and, and EFC. And um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to nail Joe down to some numbers. I'm a numbers person. I'm like... <laughs> He's not, he's not giving me anything specific. No, I totally get it. I, I, um, I totally get that it's different for everybody, but, um, I guess I just wanted to, I I don't want to harp on this for the entire show, but I just want to go a little bit further with regards to, um, how people, how parents of younger kids, for example, that are trying to plan, you know, I work with a lot of motivated, the people that work with a financial advisor are generally motivated people, right? They have assets or they're motivated to build assets. They have income and an ability to build assets. They, they're, they're just motivated. That's just the type of the, the subset of the population that I work with. So when it comes to, when it comes to, let's, for example, parents of young kids, elementary school kids, um, or younger, and, and they're planning, they want to start saving in, uh, now for the cost of education because it's daunting, right? The, right, right. And, and saving mm-hmm. early and often as my commercial says is the way to go. So I, I just, I'm trying to get an idea. What, one of the things, I, I guess I'm trying to get an idea of, first of all, Jen, maybe this is directed toward you. My, I actually, um, was searching around at colleges and the cost of colleges uh, recently because my husband and I were just chatting and, if, and and we of course you know add to our five our girls we have three daughters and we add to their five twenty nines every month and you know we we want to help them pay for most of it if not all of it if we can and 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 you know I just the other day I was just like there has got to be some private institutions out there not that I'm necessarily against public I think that there are some great public schools of course but I just was like curious if there are are there 
any private schools that don't cost like $70,000 a year. I couldn't find one. The, and any any private institution that I saw in their, you know, published tuition on the tuition and room and board on their website was north of 65,000. I just was like, I was so disappointed. I was like there's got to be something. There wasn't. Is 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 yeah. there? I mean, is it are we really just if if you're if, is it 65,000 plus these days for private? And there's just yeah, that I mean, is. A, I mean, Joe, maybe you can speak to that, but I mean, it, it's not cheap. I mean, yeah. you know, and there, I, I, there are. I mean, they they do exist, but yeah. you know, I do think that you make a good point, and um, you know, for the majority of them, yes, um, they are they are upwards of that that price for, for okay. private school education. Yeah, and then like for example, a Massachusetts state school, the, the numbers I generally use for planning purposes for my clients are in the range of thirty to thirty-five thousand a year tuition, room, and board for public. Correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. So when it comes to planning, right? So so let's say let's say I'm talking with a client and and they envision their their children at a private institution, um, and so when it comes down to like doing some planning in advance and trying to give them targets as far as what should you be saving now to hit these these targets. And of course I factor in, you know, return on assets and inflation on tuition and things like that. But should I be planning? I'm trying to nail Joe down again, one more time to a number, but should I be planning for... I guess I just, I'm, I'm unclear if I should be saying, okay, well, you're envisioning your student at uh, Brown, for example, and that's, I don't know, 75,000 a year. I'm just making numbers up. I have no idea what Brown is. Yeah. Am, am I, should, is that the number that we should be planning on? Or should we be planning that it's going to be like 80 or 90% of that because most people get some sort of aid, merit-based, for example? Do you know what I mean? I'm just trying to yeah. I'm trying to get some general guidelines about for planning purposes. Yeah. Am I? Should we use that 100% that actual published tuition number, or like one of your bullet points when you guys sent your, you know your outline of things we could talk about was um, the the real four-year college costs versus the advertised cost. So I guess that's my question as well for planning purposes purposes, what should we plan on? Knowing full well that I'm not holding anyone to this number, but just like a ballpark. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and just generally speaking, um, that advertised uh, cost of college that you see on a school's website, don't buy it. It's not that. Okay. I mean, that is literally... Literally don't buy it at that price. No, literally and, do not <laughs> don't buy it. it at that price. And if they are making you pay it at that price, yeah. then you need to shop around and you okay. should apply to multiple other schools. Um, but what I'm going to say to that is that it is very, very rare that anybody pays the full sticker price. The only okay. people who are really paying the full sticker price are typically international students okay, that don't have that. access to federal student aid. Okay. So it's very rare that anybody would ever pay the full sticker price. Even if somebody had a significant amount of resources, they could always file the FAFSA and still qualify for a direct and subsidized loan so they wouldn't be paying okay. that full sticker price out of pocket. Okay. That being said, I mean, it's really, as Tyler was talking about before, is just trying to play the field and apply to as many different schools as possible that are up your alley so you can compare different offers that you get and you can play schools off of each other. It helps to know which schools are each other's competitors so you can figure out, okay, well, if I can't get into school A, which is my dream school, and school B is willing to go a little bit further, how can I twist school A's arms so they're going to open up the coffers and uh, offer me a little bit more assistance here? And at what point in time is that negotiation happening? Like, you know, people apply in the fall and then they're getting their admission. Like, is that like March, April? And then how long do they have to play that game where they're contacting um, whatever office they call admissions, I guess, to to negotiate? Is there a reasonable amount of time to actually do that? Well, the drop dead date is May 1st. May 1st, In many okay. cases, yeah. that is the uh, date that most schools require your tuition deposit to be made. Okay. So once you've uh, hit that drop dead date and you've put money down for your tuition deposit, don't even try to negotiate after that point because you're pretty much locked in. So you don't want to be giving up your leverage um, until that date once you've made your final decision. But yeah, a lot of schools with prior prior year, they have the ability to uh, put out their financial aid letters earlier than they have in the past. And especially if you're an incoming student, this is where the negotiations are all taking place. Because if you're a returning student, um, whether sophomore year or on, you really 
don't have a discussion about merit aid with admissions once you're a returning student. Okay. Uh, admissions doesn't really have anything to do with you. They're not interested in you anymore. They're looking ahead to next year's class of uh, okay. students. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, if this is your first time around, um, you want to be having these negotiations starting uh, in the winter. Some schools will release their uh, letters depending upon how you applied. And I'm sure Jen okay. can probably speak a lot more uh, in depth to it, whether it was uh, early action or early decision. Um, but if you're part of the regular admission pool, um, these letters could be released as early as late January, early February. So you're going to want to try to gather these letters as quickly as you can, but be mindful that you have until May 1st to uh, play the game. So once you have all of your letters together, um, you're going to want to figure out, okay, which school should I be playing one off of another? Because if let's say you got accepted to uh, a public college, you got accepted to uh, UMass Amherst, but you also have an acceptance offer at uh, a private school, um, you're not going to want to compare the public uh, college or university to a private school because those are just two different price points yeah. altogether. You want to just compare public schools to public schools and private schools to private schools. Because if you go to a private school and say, hey, listen, you know, my child would be doing so much better if they went to a public school. Why should I send them here? The financial office will probably say, yeah, you're right. They probably would save a lot more money going to a public college. I have so many questions for you guys. I, I can't like keep them all in my brain. Um, we're going to have to have you guys on again so we can talk about a lot of these things. But I just had a thought like, can, can one of you guys address um, public colleges uh, across state lines? Like sometimes I see an advertisement for like attend UMaine for the price of UMass or something like, does, do states have these relationships where they're... I, can someone talk about that? Because I understand, like, you know, you're only getting an in-state tuition if you live in the state. But when you, yeah. like, for example, if you were going to attend, I don't know, UNH, for example, you're not getting the in-state tuition, you're getting the out-of-state, which is more. But are, do some states have relationships with each other and agreements that you can take an in-state tuition at an out-of-state state school? Who wants to feel that one? Yeah, come on. Uh, Jen, would you like that one? I also have my two cents, but... Yeah, uh, I mean, you can go, Joe. Go ahead. For the, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess just in terms of uh, consortium agreements is what these essentially are referred to as. Okay. And I saw this when I was working at my large public research university. We had a proximity agreement with Rhode Island okay. um, that if you were a Rhode Island resident, that you could pay a reduced cost compared to somebody who was coming to school, let's say, from Hawaii. Um, but that all being said, these consortium agreements are very exact in terms of their conditions. Okay. That, yes, you could potentially pay as much as you would uh, to attend a public college in state but that depends upon your major. They're looking uh, exclusively at whether or not the college uh, colleges in your state offer that major. And we had this okay. uh, one case with a client uh, where they were thinking about going to college out of state. They were looking at UConn. They were a Massachusetts resident. They realized they'd have to pay a lot more in terms of out of state tuition. And the parents were kind of just agonizing over, oh my gosh, like, you know, how do we get it through their head that this is going to cost them so much more money? Don't they realize they could just do the same thing here? Mm -hmm. And so the student had heard about a consortium agreement and he had brought that up with me and I walked him through it and I explained, listen, you know, I see you're interested in biology. That's a major that's offered at pretty much all of the public colleges and universities here in Massachusetts. Sure, you can do that at UConn, but you're going to pay a price for it. Now, if you were looking to go in for puppetry, um, well, there's no college in Massachusetts <laughs> that offers a uh, puppetry major. There's no public college or university that uh, does that. Is that a major? Uh, UConn, is that but, a major anywhere? has a puppetry major. Really? Uh, that you can get at the Massachusetts rate <laughs> through the consortium agreement. So that's uh, uh, what they mean when they're talking about Okay, that. okay. Maybe they're one, one state school is trying to build such and such a program, so they're going to yeah. allow people. Okay, that makes sense. Um, can, can we talk about, let me, let's, let's segue a little bit. Um, I have, I'm very optimistic as in general as a person. I feel like one of the silver linings of COVID-19 is that it's going to have a long-term effect on the way that students learn. I mean, it, it, it it's having an effect on the way that students learn. I, I think it will probably be a long-term effect and a lasting effect. Um, oh, I will ask my question, but we actually have a caller, so I'm gonna take our caller first. So let's go to Paul from Marshfield first, and then we'll get to my question. Good morning, Paul, how are you? Good morning, love the show. Thank um, you. Could you ask these gentlemen to address when the government like started leaning on the banks to um, give tuition loans, how tuition like correlatedly went up 
400% because it was uh, easily um, obtained to get loans. Oh, and, um, interesting. Uh, they can they can hear you by the way. It's two gentlemen and a lady. Um, you guys can can you guys hear Paul's Paul's question? Yeah, I hear you loud and clear, Paul. Asking about the the correlation between when banks started lo- making student loans and and tuition increases, was there a correlation? Is that your question, Paul? Yeah, like like four hundred percent. It wasn't like went up a little bit. It's like I'm sure these guys. That's what they do for a living. I know. Uh, I'm sure they realized that spike that happened, and I'll, I'll just hang up and listen if it's okay. Oh uh, yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah. So does that? I don't know how long ago we're talking about that. That Paul has this uh, information, but it. I guess it certainly makes sense to me that you know one day banks start loaning money for education. People have more access to that education, more applicants, mm-hmm. uh, more demand. And if we think about supply and demand, prices rise. Do you guys? I don't know how how long ago was this. Do you guys know? Have any information on that? Yeah, it's so a talking really about- great point. Oh. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, no, sorry. I'm just going to jump in and just like speaking from my own experience because I was in college from uh, 2005 to 2009 and it was actually beginning in 2008, 2009 that the uh, federal government stepped in and while people are still able to apply for private loans and get them through uh, private uh, banks, um, the federal government stepped in essentially and said, hey, listen, um, all of you private banks that are collecting uh, origination and processing fees for these loans, well, we're going to cut you out and we're going to institute the uh, direct loan program. That was adopted in 2008. And uh, it was initially signed into law in 2007. It became uh, the law of the land in 2008. And uh, I actually saw my loans uh, change the designation. They were no longer the uh, FELP loans, the Federal Family Education Loan Programs that were partially administered by private banks. They were now being firmly administered by the Department of Education. Oh, okay. So yeah, private banks did get cut out in uh, 2008, 2009. That doesn't mean that they're still not cutting loans left and right, but I mean, that $19,000 loan that I was talking about at the uh, top of the podcast, I actually got that through KeyBank when they were in the student loan game. That's and probably not anymore. That's probably a good thing that the federal, go- in terms of the interest rates that students have on their loans, I'm assuming it's a good thing that the federal government uh, stepped in and I'm assuming interest rates are now more reasonable because a private bank, oh, they could yeah. charge whatever interest rate they wanted. And, and I would say interest could. rates have certainly come into line. I mean, when I was in school, like it wasn't unheard of to have a 6.8% fixed interest rate on a loan. I mean, next year's interest rate, that is actually uh, quite a drop. And I think a lot of it's just tied to the uh, current economic crisis around COVID. But uh, next year's undergraduate students are going to have a 2.75% interest rate. Wow. And I'm very, very clear with families that if you have to borrow money for school, you want to start with the FAFSA because the direct unsubsidized loan, the direct subsidized loan, those are the two best loans a student can borrow without a cosigner at the best interest rate. Um, I thought all, don't all students need a cosigner now? Uh, no, oh, not okay. all students need a cosigner for talking about the federal government. If we're applying oh. for FAFSA and you qualify for the direct loans and that's all you got to do. There's no special, uh, magic to it. All you have to do is file the uh, FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid, and you're automatically qualified for the direct loan program. Uh, Those direct loans, direct unsubsidized and subsidized loans have a fixed interest rate of 2.75% going into uh, 2021. If you're looking to apply for a parent plus loan, that's a separate application after you file the FAFSA, but that interest rate also dropped uh, quite a bit. Uh, It used to be at uh, about Uh, 7.3. It's now down to uh, 5.3%. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. Um, How about, so Paul's question though is like, again, I don't know what time throughout history he's thinking, but he's asking whether there was a correlation between private banks starting to lend money. I don't know how many years ago that would have been and increases in tuition. Um, Do you guys have any, any knowledge on that? I would say that it's, uh, I'm sorry, Tyler, I don't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. I mean, you, you're the master in this, uh, oh. <laughs> this category. It gave me a big head here. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> if he was talking about the, um, the, the federal family education loan program. Okay. Um, yeah. And its origins from 1965. Okay. Um, it really depends, um, on when he's 
exactly talking about, but you know, again, I would defer to, to Joe's expertise there, but mm. that might be where he's starting. I asked, yeah. I asked Google and, um, <laughs> Google seems to know everything. Um, and I just, I, similar to what you just said, Tyler, is that, you know, studies have found that access to this one is for example, subsidized, um, subsidized non plus loans. There was a study that, the, uh, that, um, that loan program did increase the price of college. I don't know, 50 cents on the dollar or something with 50 cents on the dollar for every dollar. Yeah. Loans. But I mean, it's I a know. multitude yeah. of factors. Okay. And yeah. uh, I mean, it's a combination and a lot of people can point to different things. I mean, whether it's administrative bloat at colleges or we're talking about a systemic divestment um, by state governments from funding uh, public higher education. And I remember reading in the Atlantic not too long ago, and this was a uh, comparison analysis prior to the Great Recession versus after, and they were looking at uh, the University of Alabama in uh, 2008-2009 uh, for every uh, $5 the state of Alabama spent on uh, the University of Alabama system, students were paying $3 in tuition. And uh, now, 10 years later in 2018-19, that had flipped on its head. And instead of investing $5 in the uh, public university system, Alabama, the state was investing $1. And for every $1 that the state was investing, the students paid $5 oh. in tuition. So, I mean, you've essentially seen the privatization of public college in a matter of a decade. And this is okay. true in about half of the uh, country. Half of the states have essentially witnessed this reverse trend where students are paying more out of pocket comparatively to what their state governments are investing in them. So it's a variety of factors. As I said, it could be between that or administrative bloat. I know that there are a lot of uh, buzzy stories about lazy rivers and rock climbing walls and all these other excess amenities that we don't really need um, to have that uh, ultimate college experience. Um, but I mean, the hard fact of the matter remains that household income has basically remained flat since the late 1990s. And I was listening to uh, a recent uh, webinar with uh, Mark Antrowitz, who is a esteemed uh, expert in all areas of financial aid. And he was just talking about essentially how the average unmet need for a family has doubled between 2009, 2010 and 2017, 18. It went from about $5,600 to $12,800 in a little less than a decade. Sorry, so, what, what has doubled? Uh, the uh, average unmet need. The average uh, unmet need back uh, around the time that I left school was $5,600. And that has since doubled to $12,800. Mm -hmm. And you also have to mm -hmm. expect, and I mean, I have been in the industry for eight years and I have never, ever seen um, the uh, cost of attendance decrease. If anything, cost of attendance usually ticks up anywhere from two to 3% on average each year. So when yeah. you're making these long-term calculations as to how much money you should be setting aside, um, also be taking into account that the amount that you're paying out of pocket right now, you'll likely have to pay two or 3% more every year. Right. I usually use a 5% inflation number on tuition. And I, so I essentially like, and depending on how old the student is, if we're talking about a young student, you know, they could be invested more aggressively because they have a longer time horizon and all that. But I essentially, because I'm using like a 5% inflation on education, which I think for a long time, it hasn't been far from that. Um, I'm essentially assuming that like earnings, hopefully can just keep up with inflation. So what that means is that what you, what whatever the sticker price is now, if your earn investment earnings are just keeping up with inflation, you're essentially going to have to save what it costs now. Like you can't, I don't think people can assume that they can invest the money and like out earn inflation on education. I, I just don't think that people can assume that, which is unfortunate. So you, you got to basically, you know, my guidelines is that we got to try to tuck away what we think it's going to cost because yeah, we'll have uh, mm -hmm. investment earnings, but we'll also have inflation on the on the cost of education. Um, and I have to say you're right about yeah. that. I mean, it's really about what we do here at Vested Academics, which is helping families figure out the right financial fit. We're not just looking at getting people to school. We're looking at people getting through school all four years and getting out on the other side with the least amount of debt possible. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that may mean uh, foregoing an out-of-state school with a higher uh, 
tuition rate or looking more broadly at the other opportunities in your backyard. But that's also not to discredit the hard work that Tyler and Jen do, uh, helping people find scholarships uh, through outside organizations that can really help defray the cost. Yeah, we got we to gotta take a break in a minute, but you just mentioned like the privatization of public institutions and how that, that it's gone that way in the last hundred years, which makes sense to me, given we, I don't think any of us could name like a, a, a fiscally very healthy government right? A state or, or a federal government, right? So that makes sense to me that it's gone, that, that privatization has happened. And, and you mentioned like the, ex, the college experience. It's really transitioned to an experience. Anyway, I'm going on. You're listening to McNamara on Monday. We got to take a quick break. I'm chatting with vested academics folks today. We're just taking a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. Good morning. You're listening to McNamara on Money. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. We're chatting all things college this morning. We're on Facebook Live this morning. I hope people are joining us there as well. Um, my guests this morning are first timers, but they're doing awesome. Uh, we have Tyler Vunk, Jen Gallagher, and Joe Novenson from Vested Academics. You can find out more about them at vestedacademics.com. Uh, we've been talking about uh, trying to be pre- being prepared for the cost of college. We've been talking a lot about financial aid, uh, the, the, the real cost of college versus the sticker price, um, et cetera. So we've got about 27 minutes, guys, and about 100 things that we could talk about. So we got to hone it down. Um, what, Tyler, you mentioned a couple times scholarships, and it, mm-hmm. could we spend a few more minutes on that? Uh, we talked about fin- you know fast fund financial aid and merit based awards, um, but I think but you were touching on scholarships. I think not from necessarily from the institution you're applying to, but other third party organizations. So, can you talk a little bit more about um, how you guys what's available out there, and and how you guys help your clients uh, find opportunities? Sure, sure. So I, what you're referring to, are, you know, or what we call external scholarships, okay. right? So uh, scholarships coming from philanthropic benefactors, um, businesses, corporate entities. And the idea behind those is that really it, it's kind of like the Wild West. All you got to do is go out there and know where to find these opportunities and then you can apply. One thing that most parents, families, um, and students don't know about is the fact that every month of the year, Every month, there are opportunities that you can apply to. It's not just a spring and fall Hmm. kind of thing anymore. One of the ways that um, this has come to pass is via scholarship search engines. So there are a ton of them out there. Um, Similar to Google, you throw in um, a little bit of a search query criteria and boom, you have, um, you know, literally hundreds, if not thousands of opportunities to apply to. So one thing that I always... Um, tell our students is that if you want to do it the right way, you you technically want to apply to 40 scholarship opportunities throughout an entire year. Okay. And you'd want to start um, after your applications have been submitted. And it's important because you know, we also, we don't have to get into it, but there's that emotional component of the student. And if you burn them out and stress them out with all of the other things they have on their plate, they won't actually do it. But, um, you know, it, it should be right as soon as they finish their apps, senior year, you apply to 40 all throughout the summer. And then um, freshman year, sophomore year, junior year of college. Uh, oh, and okay. there are a variety, a variety of um, different types. So essay contests, that don't care about your GPA, hmm. merit-based awards that, yeah, they will care about your, um, y- you know, your your grades. And then there are other ones that are just weird that will <laughs> that will be something like, uh, you know, uh, post, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, haiku or random slogan and push it on Facebook. And you know, it's essentially marketing yeah. for a business or something, but tons of money. Do you have some examples of some students that have, were successful in some of those? I mean, no, you mentioned yourself and you put yourself through grad school. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any other examples? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I work with uh, kids one-on-one and typically there's two approaches. I can either teach you how to find, um, locate and vet and find all these opportunities because there's a lot of scams out there and just ones that are, are a waste of time. There's too okay. much competition. Okay. And then um, the other side is that I will um, find the scholarship for you and then give you some writing coaching and help you apply to them. And typically, um, you know, what we find is that most students, 
you know, I, let's just face it. They don't want to put the work in. Yeah. So before I even take on a student, I interview them because it's, it, we want this to be a win-win and we want to make sure that they're willing to do it, um, do the work. So, you know, I think that, um, one of the best parts about this is what I see usually is if students do everything I tell them to do, they enter all 40, you know, I can never, ethically, I can never guarantee they're going to win anything, but it's usually anywhere from three grand to 13,000. Um, and then on top of it, they, um, you know, they essentially also start getting that skin in the game. Like Joe was talking about where they become more involved at school too. Well, most 18, 19 year olds have, I'm pretty comfortable saying they have no concept of money. They have very little concept of the impact of student loans, right? And, and um, you know, like when you're 18 years old, for example, and your parents are paying for like almost everything in your life, number one, and number two, you, they don't have a concept of what life costs and how really expensive life is, especially in our area of the world. Um, and so, you know, they might hear... $30,000 in student loans, $50,000 in student loans, $80,000 in student loans. I, I, I'm very comfortable saying that most high school students have no concept of how that will affect their life upon graduation and how they might be carrying those loans until they're like 40 or 45 and what that and what and how that drains and how that just impacts your life and your ability to live your life and to save for your other goals, you know, your own retirement and things like that. And, um, um, I'm really glad I met you guys. You guys would love the money fair that I do for this for the Marshfield High School students. I'm not sure that we're going to do it this year because of COVID, but um, one of the one of the really really important things that I hammer home is is the impact of debt. And and I don't and I don't um, hyper focus on student debt, even though that's like the vast majority of debt that you know a 22 year old would carry is student loan debt. But I I try to really impress upon them the impact of debt on your life. Like for example, you know, I'll randomly assign them $50,000 in student debt or $80,000 in student debt. And, and some of them at the end of that day will come up to me and be like, well, I couldn't afford to rent an apartment. I had too much debt. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, and they're mad, right? Like they're mad about it. And I'm like, well, that's a real life lesson. That's like, that's real life right there. You might not be Mm -hmm. able to, if you're carrying it. So, um, I think it's, you know, uh, what you just mentioned about, you know, the the students, you know, you need to make sure they're engaged if you're going through this process of, of coaching them and, um, you know, directing them towards all these scholarship opportunities. I, I, I'm assuming it's probably kind of rare to find one that's really motivated to bring down their amount of debt or bring down the cost of college just because they don't have that real life, um, perspective on, on what that dollar amount will, how it will affect them. Um, I I was going to say it, it is, it is rare, but at the same time, what usually happens is students are all fired up, right? I get it. I want to do this. And then two months in they go, I'm done. So (laughs) typically what, what I do is they say, okay, put it on pause, come back to me next year. And what happens is they see that first tuition bill Mm -hmm. and then they see that first year of debt and they go, Oh, this is real. And then they come back with, you know, maybe a different, different view of it. Well, that's, Mm -hmm. that's good. And you just described my experience within my master's program. I was so fired up starting my master's and then I was just taking a class at a time. So two years and I was like, I'm done. You know, another important Um, that Tyler made was that you, these kids can apply to them, you know, after they go to college. And I when I meet with parents, they don't, they don't even know that's a thing. So, you know, and I think, correct me if if, if I'm wrong, but I would think you would have more opportunities, you know, going forward than actually, you know, as a high school senior, because, you know, once kids are in it, they're kind of like, all right, I'm in it and I'm just going to think about it later. And I have so much on my plate. It's not something I want to, you know, dedicate any time to, but, you know, as you get older, sometimes that's probably a better chance to, you know, get some of these scholarships that people kind of have pushed to the side. Oh, sure. You're more mature. You have a little bit more experience. Your writing is probably better. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, this is maybe, maybe the first I'm really hearing about these like rolling opportunities for, for third party scholars. That's fantastic. Um, Yeah. And to piggyback off of uh, what Jen was saying, I mean, and this is something too that we really try to impress on students and their families is that yes, there are these 
big opportunities out there in terms of that big money. We're talking about the 20, the 25, the $30,000 scholarships. But, you know, a lot of people also don't realize that while those uh, applicant pools can be very deep and you're up against a lot of competition, there are so so, so many smaller opportunities mm -hmm. that people just pass up. They have very shallow application pools, whether it's a, a 100, a 200, a $500 scholarship. Most people are going to turn up their nose at that. But my, my answer to that is don't. I mean, yeah. just to give you an example, my mom got a $500 scholarship to attend community college back in the day uh, by writing Colgate toothpaste and telling them how much she loved using Colgate toothpaste. <laughs> and so there really are those, uh, no, I'm serious. And there really are those opportunities out there for people. Um, right in their own backyard. And if you string enough of those smaller awards together, sure. the 100, the 200, the $500 scholarships, well, I mean, you've just paid for books right there. Yeah. This is such a huge deal. Yeah. 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 I could give you, I could, okay, here's a tip. Anybody out there, just go ahead and Google, go to Google, put in lost, um, uh, law office scholarship. You will find literally, I don't know, probably a hundred different um, scholarships from random law offices around the country that are open to undergrads and high school students. Wow. That's so cool. I just did yeah. it, Tyler. There are a lot. <laughs> there are and a lot. There are going to be companies and in, in organizations, uh, law offices you never heard of, but that's just one and query. I'm assuming you, know you could I mean? do that for any major, like someone's going into, uh, mm -hmm. you know, engineering. They, you could prop, can you Google, you know, and 2020 engineering scholarships, right? Like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, cool. Just, right. just make sure to check the due date that it hasn't already passed. <laughs> okay. Uh, 2021, maybe. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk about, let's talk about COVID for a little bit. So, okay. um, uh, maybe we can talk about the, how the process is different during COVID and how education will be different this year. But I'm like, I'm optimistic that this will, that this has the potential to lower the cost of education in the future because students are now and, and institutions are now learning that they can deliver an education at a lower cost via virtual. They could, they could potentially be offering more hybrid models, right? They can, you know, maybe, maybe this students are learning that, um, you know, for, for the student, it is much about the experience and living with friends and being on campus. I understand that that's a huge part of it, but let's be honest, it, it's prim it should primarily be about education, but I understand the experience for me also was a huge part of it. Um, but, you know, what what do you guys see? Are you thinking like fast forward five, 10 years? Are you thinking that this will have a lasting impact on the cost of education? Hmm. Please, somebody tell me. Yes, it will. I would have to say to that that yeah. I think this is forcing a lot of colleges and universities to start taking a long and hard look at themselves and about building economies to scale. That there is this grow or die mantra right now in higher education. And we see a lot of these uh, smaller colleges and uh, schools being gobbled up mm -hmm. um, because they're not able to... Uh, essentially capitalize on uh, their returns that they're not able to bring in enough investment, whether that's trying to recruit more students or to expand their offerings. And I mean, just to be a uh playing with that. As I said, it's about building economies to scale. It's about figuring out how to do more with less. And if once you've figured out that target population, how many people you actually need to attract in order to keep your lights on, then you can start going from there and potentially, you know, lowering the overall cost of college. So yeah, I think there is a hidden opportunity here. Yeah. I mean, as far as learning is concerned, um, you know, I think undergrads are perfectly capable of learning um, via video conference. And I would argue that all kids are, um, but let's save that for another conversation. Okay. But um, in general, you know, uh, when we get more opportunities to learn online and they work and we can say, uh, even just taking prerequisites, things like that, um, that shows us that, you know, moving forward, you can make uh, a more affordable model that a lot of people can access, whether that's just for an undergraduate degree or even for master's degree programs. But uh, you know what? I actually, um, I bet Jen has something to say about this because, you know, uh, uh, I just think on the admission side of things, there's, there's a lot going on right now as well and how, how all of that ties in. I think the biggest thing is get like you said Alyssa about the experience a lot of people have that kind of view in their mind that it has to check all these boxes you know yeah and so kind of when we were hit in the spring with like it's not going to be like that um it's a it's a I think kind of a viewpoint that might have to change for for some people 
maybe it will never change, but, um, you know, over time, it might be kind of assessing the value of the mm-hmm. things that you get and and how important it is to kind of refocus on the academic part yeah. um, for some people and, and really, you know, the cost of that and the debt that they're going to accrue, mm-hmm. you know, for the for the experience and, and what that looks like for them, mm-hmm. you know, individually. I can remember reading like, like, 10, 12 years ago about um, under the heading of combating the uh, staggering cost of education and the rising cost of education um, that some schools were starting to play around with um, partnering with like local community colleges or smaller institutions that didn't have the household name, for example, and 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 having students take some classes outside of that uh, well-known institution have them take some classes um, and and being able to offer the education at a lower cost, but the students still able to get their degree, their diploma from that well, you know, known institution. And I can, I was very optimistic 10 years ago about, oh, this is going to be a game changer. And um, I don't know that that's really taken off, but like, so pre- prior to COVID, were, were you guys helping any of your clients like pursue strategies like that? Like, you know, um, it, how common is it for someone to go to community college for a year and then transfer or, you know, take do a couple years at a uh, you know public institution and then transfer to private? Like how, what strategies like that, how common are strategies like that? Are they realistic? You know, I, I understand that transferring is a lot easier said than done. Um, there's yeah. emotional components to that. Um, Mm-hmm. Jen, I, I know we, we work with transfers. Yeah, students. we work with transfers mm-hmm. a lot. Um, yeah. I actually anticipate uh, that going up in the future. I just okay. feel like, especially since a lot of seniors, well, now incoming freshmen had to make kind of a lot of different decisions, um, maybe not, you know, having all the information that they normally would, would have when making, you know, a decision to what school they're going to attend, that, you know, the process looked a little different this time around. You and, mean just because of COVID, you mean? Yeah, just yeah. because of COVID. You know, a lot of s- students are going to schools this year that they've actually never been to before until they step foot on it in yeah in September so and that that aside a lot of schools in the last couple of of weeks have decided to just not open and go you know purely remote so that is looking like okay they're either going to get there you know the second semester or or not at all this year and then and then they're going to have to decide is this some place I'd like to start as a sophomore or you know would I like to kind of you know look at my options a little better um so I think as far as COVID goes we're going to see the impact of this for for numerous numerous years and I think it's going to mm-hmm. ask a lot of questions and already has to a lot of families you know what what is most important to us and what is the value you'll see you know blogs and all you know comments from people all over you know Facebook parent sites saying you know what are you doing because yeah. I just don't think the value you know I I just don't want to pay for, you know, him to go there if he's going to be sitting in a room and doing online classes. And, you know, a lot of parents have decided just to keep their kids home and, you know, you know, get a job and save on room and board. And, you know, those things, you know, weirdly enough, a lot of kids actually do that in general. So, you know, and so I think it's kind of just promoting a lot of those questions that, you know, people haven't really asked themselves. A lot of times when they come to me again, it's like, we're looking for this, this, and this. And I have to really prompt them to say, well, how about these other things? Have you thought about, you know, you know, uh, the cost of travel? Have you, you mm-hmm. know, thought about the cost of, you know, equipment as far as technology and, and, and books and those kind of things. Um, and a lot of times, no, I mean, it's just the kind of idea that like, the student wants to, you know, go to a certain place and, you know, again, the rock walls and the kind of, you know, <laughs> you know, again, it's kind of like reaching for the stars, but not realizing, you know, the impact afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just to add to that, I mean, just speaking from my perspective as the uh, resident millennial here, um, I had to borrow $46,000 to pay for school. Um, I honestly have had the uh, privilege and the, uh, 
real uh, reward, honestly, of working with students from Gen Z. And I got to say, because these students were coming up when the Great Recession happened, they saw how it affected their parents, they saw how it affected their older siblings who were trying to put themselves through college, who were taking on obscene amounts of debt. And it really has forced a lot of these students to become a lot more financially savvy and to be looking at college more as an investment rather than an experience that they're looking at it as an opportunity to essentially improve their bottom line for the long term. And while it's important to not denigrate that four year experience, they're looking at it big picture. How much is this really going to cost me? What is the true cost of college? Not socially, not am I going to be running in the right circles? Am I going to be making the right connections? But am I going to be living on top ramen for the next 10, 15, 20 years? And I'm really happy to see that that shift started with the Great Recession. And I have to imagine with all the financial strain that we're under right now with COVID, that that's going to be forcing people to be taking a harder look at what the true cost of college should be. And it should start to erase some of that stigma around going to community college and getting yeah, those exactly. prerequisites done. I hope, and- I do hope so. I hope that's the case. Yeah. I want to point out there that that, you know, that is still possible. And I tell that to, you know, um, kids all the time. So if you don't know where you want to go, there's nothing wrong with going to community college for a year, getting some of those prereqs out of the out of the way, working, and more importantly, you know, go find a, an internship. You yeah. you know, you think yeah. you want to go into that um, field? Go shadow somebody, and then you know, make the decision. You know, it it'd be great if you could have done that during high school, but not everybody has the resources or the ability to do that. Yeah. So you know, we you know, we all have heard of professionals who went to community college saved a ton of money transferred in their in their either late in their sophomore year or maybe even their junior year and then went on and got a high paying professional degree whether mm-hmm. that's you know a law degree um you know becoming a physician something like that like that happens Yep. And just to piggyback off what you said, Tyler, and I mean, I believe it was you who told me this, that, you know, literally today, we don't have the luxury to find ourselves at college. We don't. It's a very expensive proposition to find yourself at college. And if I could do it all over again, having attended a private college and pursuing a major that paid on average $30,000 a year, I would have probably started at a state school. I would have probably saved myself a lot of money looking back on it. But you know what? Hindsight is 2020. And, uh, I got to say, as I said before, you don't have really the luxury to find yourself at college anymore. It's really about uh, looking at what you have in front of you right now and uh, planning ahead so that you put yourself in a better position. What do right. you what What are you guys talking? So for your uh, the clients that you have, your students right now that are like seniors, for example, and they're going they should be going through this process of applying for right entering in 2021. What are w- w- given COVID-19? What are you guys what are the conversations like? Are we thinking that it's going to be normal by 2021? Or are we thinking that it's still going to be much, much remote learning is still going to be very common and choices should be diff- might be different? Like, what are you guys talking with your seniors about? Yeah, I don't know if, um, I don't know if we can predict that too, too much, but um, as far as the admissions process goes, you know, we've had to have some serious conversations with, with kids and families about, you know, showing them how to, you know, kind of amp up their application and and show their interest to colleges that they might have never visited before they're going to apply. So, you know, it's not just a a matter of like kids that, you know, were like, oh, I didn't get to a few colleges, um, you know, before the application deadline. It's like a lot of kids that some haven't even been to college. Can you Um, even do a a campus visit these days? Probably not. Yeah, so the summer, in the summer, we had some some colleges open depending on the state yeah. and what the kind of travel bans requirements were. I actually have a rising senior, so we actually went to Connecticut one day and visited two schools. Um, it, just, it just was very touch and go. You know, I'd look up a school one week, it wasn't open. The next week, they're like, we're opening, you know, next week, you know, so, yeah. and, and very strict guidelines. You couldn't get on campus in, in, in case, unless you had a a reservation, um, you know, they, they had to follow, you know, all those, uh, all those regulations. So there were still obviously people that didn't feel comfortable or couldn't get to, you know, schools in certain states or, I mean, we, we were one of them. So, yeah. um, so now it's just about, you know, kind of talking through their application, um, 
at a time when, you know, all they're really able to do is kind of, you know, search and, and guide through virtual. So, you know, it looks like virtual tours. It looks like virtual yeah. information sessions, webinars, um, mm-hmm. you know, chats mm-hmm. with faculty and students. Like the admissions offices have been great and they've really put as much out there as that as they can, you know, virtually. Yeah. Um, and they're very open to, you know, speaking with kids and even talking to their parents if needed. Um, but the, the cycle that usually, you know, kind of is wrapping up when the pandemic started kind of went way longer and kind of continues to still go longer into kind of what the, you know, juniors would have just been starting. Exactly. Like a lot of overlap. Um, And that May 1st deadline, a lot of schools even actually moved it to June 1st and even farther to have give kids more time to kind of decide what they wanted to do. Um, And that would, that was a time when like a lot of, you know, juniors that were just ending their year were kind of going to start, you know, really focusing on becoming a senior and and looking at schools. So, you know, I think, you know, admissions offices have done a great job, um, but I think, you know, we will kind of still kind of be in this for a couple of years to kind of weed out everything that's Mm -hmm. happened. And, um, you know, again, it will prompt a lot of questions to kind of see, you know, I, I, I do a lot of college searches for kids and um, you know, you have the kids that were, you know, fine going farther away and now they've kind of come back and yeah. said, eh, not I so much. I, yeah. Kind of on the fence. Yeah. You know? and so we took for we granted said, how easy it was would be to just come home. And, yeah. and now I mean, it's honestly, not so much. that's always a conversation I have with my families because yeah. I feel like the reality is you get a kid and that's why we do so, so much communication. It is really a family decision. Um, you know, I have the kid that that will Zoom with me and say, like, I want to go to California, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you mm-hmm. probably yeah. said the same thing. And then the parents will say, well, we're really concerned about money and we're really concerned about this. And I said, well, we got to kind of match up a little bit here because, yeah. you know, that's yeah. not that's not really realistic. Yeah. Um, I remember when I went to school, my parents said six hours driving. That's it. That's what I'm telling my kids. <laughs> you have a six <laughs> hour radius. <laughs> and I was like, um, excuse me, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh yes, like if 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 we're gonna pay for it, you know, yeah, that, that's all you got there. And I, I was know. like, you know, again, so it's really a family decision, and yeah. um, we spend a lot of time, you know, kind of going through that before we do a list for for a family and for a student because yeah. we want to make sure that kind of everybody's on you know, on the same page. Yeah. Well, guys, I could talk with you all morning. We're definitely going to have to have you on again, but we do need to wrap it up. Um, you guys have been great. This was um, Tyler Vunk, Jen Gallagher, and Joe Novenson of Vested Academics. They are, uh, wait, tell me what your your college planners and academic counselors. Did I get that right? And uh, finding. Yeah, college planning consultants and academic coaching. Perfect. And and financial aid experts. uh, VestedAcademics.com for more information on them. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. You can find me at McNamaraFinancial.com or McNamaraOnMoney.com. If you missed part of this uh, episode and you want to catch up, we will have it on podcast. You can go to the podcast app and search McNamara on Money. I hope everyone has a great weekend. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.